Welcome back to Spoken Earth with me, Adam Weymouth. In-depth conversations with the world's most interesting environmental thinkers. Today I'm speaking with the American ecologist, activist and philosopher David Abraham, an author of The Spell of the Sensuous, Perception and Language in a More Than Human World. The deliciousness of being a body, of having a body, we say, but I think of, of being an embodied creature as we are, is that our body is a variant of every other body in the landscape that we encounter. David Abraham grew up on Long Island. As a boy, he was already fascinated by the outdoors. And as a teenager, he became interested in magic when a magic shop opened its doors in a nearby town. In magic, he found a way of creating that same sense of wonder in others that he himself felt when he was entranced by the natural world. He was hooked. He put himself through college, performing in restaurants and clubs. And after two years, he took a year out to travel through Europe and the Middle East, busking with magic to pay his way. His next trip was through Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Nepal, looking to meet traditional indigenous magicians. At the start, he was interested in how these characters used magic in their medicine as a way of promoting healing. But the more time that he spent with them, he became increasingly interested in the relationships these practitioners had with what he calls the more than human world, their animist view of the earth. These experiences all contributed to his 1996 book, The Spell of the Sensuous. It is one of the most dazzling works I've ever read. Not only in its subject matter, which explores both philosophically and experientially how we have cut ourselves off from this more than human world, why that matters and how to reawaken our senses to reclaim our place as part of this living, breathing planet, but also in the very way that Abraham has of writing, of telling stories. It's a powerful, visceral experience that completely blew open how I saw my place in the world. I have a vivid memory of walking outside after having finished a chapter and hearing birdsong as though for the first time as though the birds were talking directly to me. It is indeed a kind of magic, and I'm not alone. When I told a friend I was doing this interview, he said to me, David Abraham changed my life. When we sat down together, I started off by asking him what he's attempting to do with his unique, life-changing work. As a, a cultural ecologist, I've got this particular fascination with the ecology of sensory experience with the activity of our animal senses, of our eyes and our ears and our skin and our nostrils, even our taste buds on our tongue, how our animal senses in their spontaneous activity function to sort of bind our individual nervous systems into the encompassing ecosystem, as though perception was like a kind of glue that connects our individual nervous system into the wider ecosystem. But I'm also hugely fascinated by what we could call the ecology of language, the way in which our words so profoundly influence our senses, constrain our animal senses. I'm convinced that there are ways of speaking that many of us have inherited from this peculiar civilization into which we were educated, uh, ways of speaking that, that really work to close down, to stifle, inhibit that spontaneous sensory kinship between our animal body and the animate earth around us. But I'm just as convinced that there are 
other ways of speaking, other ways of wielding our words that can encourage and enhance that instinctive reciprocity between our senses and the earthly sensuous. And I'm always looking for those ways of speaking otherwise that unshackle our senses, free them up to engage the sensuous world afresh, more creatively, more participatively. So I would say, first and foremost, you know, if you ask, what is it I'm after? I'm, I'm looking to really loosen the senses from their constraints, their shackles in which they're held by an outmoded ways of speaking, outmoded assumptions that serve only to close down our nervous system and seal it into a self-enclosed casket. And I suppose we should think then about how, how did we end up here? How, how did we, we end up in these shackles? And I suppose I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot at the moment. I've got two little children now that are four and one. And I think probably reading your work at the same time as I see these kids growing and see this, this process of shackling <laughs> gradually happening to them. Why, why have we ended up in this place? Well, gosh, as you know, that's, that's a giant question. So, so many different factors at play um, from questions of technology, matters of the advent of farming, as came up in your wonderful interview with Hugh Brody, the Neolithic Revolution. So many different trajectories have contributed to uh, us ending up at this very difficult and unfortunate point where we find ourselves. But one factor that I found was hardly noticed that was that was just not spoken of very much, if at all, when I was pondering and puzzling this conundrum, had to do with the fact that all of the cultures that so many of us uh, radical ecological activists tend to extol as being richly place-based cultures that live in some kind of basic reciprocity with the living lands that they inhabit, such indigenous cultures, as we speak of them, all tended to be traditionally oral cultures, that is, cultures that had come into being and flourished, often century after century, even millennia after millennium, in the absence of any formal writing system. Oral cultures, cultures without formalized writing, without a script or an alphabet that is tightly bound to their spoken language. So when we are speaking of indigenous, place-based, or nomadic cultures, by and large, not in every case, but in almost every, we're speaking of traditionally oral cultures without a highly formalized system of writing. And so I began to wonder, what is it that writing does to our senses and to our sensory experience of the more than human terrain? And what is it that formal writing systems do to our experience of language and linguistic meaning? Prior to the advent of an alphabet or a very phonetic writing system, there's this general sense that language is not a particularly human property. Rather, everything speaks. The land is expressive through and through, and each thing, each presence within the terrain has its expressive 
dynamism, it's speech, really. Any sound can be a voice. Any movement can be a gesture laden with expressive intent. And so, of course, crickets, rhythms are a kind of speech. Birds song very explicitly, but even the wind in the willows, thunder, the big voice at the origin of the world in some traditions, the splashing speech of waves upon the beach, that meaningful utterance is a property of the earth itself. But with the beginning of writing, well, different writing systems affect our human senses in different ways. And if one looks at some of the older, uh, more hieroglyphic writing systems like of ancient Egypt or the very different hieroglyphic writing of the Mayan culture or even the ideographic uh, script of China, where you have stylized images of humans and human implements interspersed with stylized uh, images of the moon, of a sunrise, of a tree or a forest edge, or particular animals, a serpent, a feline, a monkey. And so the reader reading such a script is continually reminded of language's link to the whole more than human field, the written characters of a more iconic or pictorially derived writing system still function as windows opening onto that much more than human field of voices. But with a phonetic writing system like the alphabet, you look at the letter B and you go B. You look at the letter C, you go K. You see the letter D and it points you right back to your face and you make that sound with your mouth, duh. That is, the letters no longer function as windows opening onto that wider world. They're beginning to act as mirrors reflecting the human form, the human face, the human mouth back upon itself. Only with the advent and spread of the phonetic alphabet did human language begin to think of itself as the only language there is. Only then do we two-leggeds begin to think that uh, language is an exclusively human property and the rest of the land begins to fall mute. It no longer speaks. Right, that's, that's something that really stuck with me when I read your book for the first time. And it's something that's really influenced how I think about my own writing as well. I, I was wondering if you can talk a bit more about that difference in how stories are seen between the rest and, and the oral cultures, how that actually manifests. For us in the highly literate world of the West, we want to know something about the past or we want to know some key information about how to harvest a particular plant or how to prepare the skins of an animal for uh, use in a particular way by the culture. We go over to uh, the bookshelf and we pull down a book um, and we open it up and page through it to find that information. We are a, a culture where information now lives in books. But in a culture without formal writing, how was all of that knowledge 
gathered together and preserved and handed down. For most of your listeners who ponder this at all, uh, the answer becomes obvious that oral cultures are cultures of story. So the stories are like the living encyclopedias of a non-writing or oral culture. All of that rich ancestral knowledge is layered into the stories. But then again, the question would be, well, how are the stories remembered? How are the stories preserved and handed down? And until recently, it was just thought, well, I guess in an oral culture, you grow up hearing these stories told all the time. And so by the time you're in your teens, you know all these stories. And so you can tell them yourself. But that doesn't quite get at it because, as you know well, uh, in a traditionally oral culture, the stories are not told all the time. Here in North America, among the many exceedingly different and divergent indigenous traditions native to this continent, one commonality is that stories, particularly the important teaching stories, are not told um, all the time. They're not told at all during certain periods of the year. Uh, many of them are told only during the winter so that the other animals won't hear you talking about them. They're hibernating or resting or asleep and won't be offended by your speaking about them behind their back, as it were. The stories, I, I was even present at the telling of some story traditions that happens very, very rarely, not every year by any means, but some told, you know, every 10 years. In Indonesia, I was present at the telling of a story cycle that happens something like once every 100 years. But how then are these stories preserved? And one of the amazing keys that opened up in the course of my research was realizing that so many of the oral tradition stories are preserved because they are associated with particular sites or places in the surrounding landscape where the, those stories happened or where the events in those stories are understood to have happened. And so as you are wandering through the terrain, you, you're continually encountering that cave mouth or that cluster of rocks or that cliff side or that bend in the river where a particular tale played out. That is, the landscape is the primary mnemonic or memory trigger for remembering the oral stories. It's as if as you wander through the land, you're wandering through this richly storied terrain where every clump of trees and yes, river bend is sprouting and telling stories to you or even through you as you step through that, that land. The land itself speaks. You're listening to Spoken Earth with me, Adam Weymouth. Today, I'm speaking with the American ecologist and philosopher, David Abram. You have that incredible episode that you write about in Spell of the Sensuous of the Aboriginal man being driven through the outback in Australia, and he's not able to keep up with the speed of the stories that he's trying to tell to the rest of the people sitting in the car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, a, a tale I first bumped into about our very wonderful American poet Gary Snyder visiting the Australian outback and um, 
traveling with a Pichanchara man named Grandfather Jimmy, Jimmy Chungarai, who's driving Gary in a pickup truck through, through the outback and telling Gary some of the Dreamtime stories about, you know, a bunch of the Wallaby women who were going along over there and bumped into some of the green ant people and they got into a major fight. And so the green ants ran up onto that hill over there and where they bumped into some of the crocodile men, whoa, and then some fornication happened. And the crocodile men came running down this side of the hill and the green ants down that. And he's telling the story so fast that Gary just couldn't keep up with him. He's wanting him to slow down so he can follow the story until suddenly... Snyder realizes with a start that these stories were, of course, originally meant to be told while walking, but they are driving in a pickup truck through that landscape. And so they're passing each of the places where those stories once happened very rapidly. And so you have to pace the speed of your speaking to the speed at which you are moving through the through the terrain. That is the intimacy between language and land is so tight and intimate in a traditionally oral culture. And I suppose, I mean, because Spell of the Sensuous was what, 1996? Yes. I mean, you, you know, you say that we live in a world where we hold our world in, in books, but that almost feels quite nostalgic now. That feels very of the 90s. Since 1996, <laughs> we've gone much, much further down the rabbit hole of just staring ourselves in the face. And I wonder how you see us going sort of so far beyond a written culture into the digital social media culture that we are now. Do you want to speak about that, where things have gone, where things are... Could we be more divorced than, than, than we were when you wrote Spread of the Sensuous? Or are we going back to some kind of oral culture? In some ways, we feel social media could be more of a living language. I don't know. Could it be seen to be going the other way? Well, certainly there, there are many who feel that, um, that the move to digital culture and the internet is a move out of textual and literate culture toward a new form of orality. You and I are, um, this is being recorded audially, but we are looking at each other and speaking through the screen. And so there is a kind of face-to-face -face quality to um, our engagements through the internet. But for me, I don't see it as in any way a return or a circling round to a new kind of orality. It feels to me that we're still staring at flat surfaces, no longer the surface of a page, but now the surface of the screen, uh, which has become that much more hypnotic and dazzling in its glow like the glow of the ancient fires we used to sit around when we were telling stories. But it's entirely of human invention. And I think it's locked us that much more thoroughly into an almost exclusively human sphere of interchange. There's not a lot of other animals online participating with us, except those we choose to place there. But even the human encounter through the screen is, uh, yeah, our faces are engaged face to face, but it's just our heads. The rest of the body is kind of put out of play almost entirely. And it's even more placeless than text, than the book. I would say digital culture seems inherently global and globalizing 
literate culture, inherently cosmopolitan, but oral culture, the culture of face-to-face and face-to-place storytelling is inherently local. It's the stories we share in a particular watershed, a particular valley, about what happens in this valley and at particular sites and spots within the valley, the kinds of encounters that happen here, the kinds of interactions between creatures and plants that dwell in this unique geological locus. The stories circulate here. We don't steal them from the land by putting them into any other form of media, but we let them be carried by the original medium, which is the air that carries the shaped breath of utterance between each of us and the place and between each of us as we speak with one another, as even we're telling stories to each other, but any animal walking past or slithering past can hear something of the encounter and pick up perhaps from the rhythm, the tonality, the melody of our speaking, something of the meaning in the tale. Even the trunks of trees can resonate with the tone and timbre of our telling. So this is a very different way of sharing language, the oral face-to-face and what I'm calling face-to-place telling of tales. One of the things that I'm committed to as an activist, a sort of a curious uh, strategy for meeting the gathering storms that are intensifying uh, all around us, I'm very interested in the tactic or rather the strategy of rejuvenating oral culture, replenishing the culture of face-to-face and face-to-place storytelling, not to the exclusion of writing and literacy. I'm, I'm a writer. I love the written word. Um, I love to read. Sometimes I enjoy writing, but it's very hard for me at the same time. Nor even to the exclusion of the internet and the computer, because that's not going away anytime soon. But rather, underneath these less embodied layers of culture and of language, replenishing that ground layer, the soil of oral culture, of that face-to-face and face-to-place storytelling that I think is the deep soil in which those other less embodied layers of culture need to be rooted if they're not to become destructive. And I suppose you could see that changing not just as a culture becomes literate, but as as an individual becomes literate as well from those kind of very early years of life little kids seem to manifest a lot of what you're talking about and the fascination and the perception and and not making a huge distinction between things that are inert and things that are more obviously animate. It's easy to feel a, a tug as my four-year-old daughter starts to learn to read and write. It's easy to question that in a sense. I, I don't know, I suppose my question is that trajectory inevitable as through the individual as, as we grow up? Do we begin to shackle those senses or is there another way to approach learning to read and write? Yeah, I don't think it's inevitable at all. Um, though I remember very much when I was first learning to read and to shape and form the letters by hand, that only as I began to gain access to this new magic of reading and writing did I gain 
access to the world that all the adults seem to inhabit. Wow. What just seems especially important is that we not force our children to become literate before they become oral, before they know what it is to inhabit with their whole creaturely flesh, a, a world of stories that are leaking out from every part of the house and every part of the, of the landscape around them. And so the huge importance today of, of telling stories to our kids. But, you know, some folks hear that and they say, oh, yeah, well, I do. You know, I read from the Brothers Grimm to my kids all the time. But no, it's not about reading stories. It's about putting books aside and weaving a tale with your kids, with the whole of your gesturing organism and having some stories that you know by heart. And so you can tell them while looking your kids in the eye and taking on various of the characters within the tale come right into your muscled flesh and the sounds of your voice. But even more important, tugging your kids out of doors, you know, and, and walking them down to the edge of, of, of the river and sitting there and even improvising a story about some fish that uh, your grandpa caught and that granted him three wishes. Um, or maybe your grandpa told you just such a tale, but activating that tale afresh. But for me, when I was raising my kids, there was a, a lot of improvising of stories with them because they wanted stories at every weird moment of the day or night. And it was like, what am I going to tell about? And I would just look around until something caught my eye, you know, some cloud shape or particular plant or tree or dilapidated house. And I would just launch into a story weaving together, you know, two or three of the things that I saw immediately around me at that time. And developing that as an organ seems to me so important. You know, a key element of our craft of being good dads and good moms, good parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts to our children. But I just think it's terribly important that children have a chance, have years to dwell and play in the storied, deeply oral world, which is a much more full-bodied world before they then grow into the world of literacy or are swooped into the world of the internet and the gleaming dazzle of the digital screen. It's interesting though, isn't it, that even though kids' books is such a separation from what you're talking about, is it not easier for kids to read in books? You know, there are talking animals and talking trees and talking rivers and talking winds. And it is still much more acceptable in children's literature to have all these other creatures speaking, which, which then seems to vanish entirely when you get to an adult literacy. Yeah. And that says something about how old this is in us. I mean, it's just, it's an instinct we cannot eradicate for the little human being. It needs to learn how to navigate, even in the world of human emotions with all their subtlety and difficulty and weirdness, 
by first seeing them embodied in other creatures, other animals, even plants, weather patterns, because that is and was how all of us learned to navigate. It was the land and that more than human field of forces that really taught us how to be human with one another, how to do least harm also in our interhuman engagements. And I, for one, don't think we have a hoot of a chance of healing our myriad human injustices and violences without beginning to open our hearts and our attentions once again onto that much wider community of beings. Other animals lend so much insight. So it's not just children who need other animals and plants to make sense of the human world. I actually think all of us do still. And that's why it's so important, isn't it? You know, I think as powerfully as you speak about our disconnection from being able to listen to any of these other beings, it still almost feels like something we can take or leave. But I've got my internet and I've got my, my fellow humans, like David tells a nice story, but why does it matter any more than that? But you would say that, that this really does matter profoundly. It's not just something sort of trivial that we've lost. It's not a, something that it would be nice to engage with again, but really there is no solution to the kind of fix that we're in until we can start to, to be aware of the fix that we're in, I suppose. I don't think there's any solution to the fix that we're in until we ally ourselves with the other creatures, the plants, the fungi, but also, you know, the myriad other landforms, mountains, rivers, forests, dry riverbeds, the winds and weather patterns, feeling out what aspects of the, of the more than human terrain speak to you, what have an affinity for your sensibility. For each of us, we're all so different in this way, and yet we all have secret alliances with a particular kind of weather, with a particular kind of water. I grew up by the ocean there in suburban Long Island, so you would think that waves really speak to me, but no, they don't. I have friends for whom mountain tarns and lakes and ponds really, really get through to them and put them in a, a wonderful trance. They don't speak to me at all, but put me near moving water like a river or a, even just a small stream and all sorts of things come alive inside my organism and start dancing. I don't know why, but my organism has this secret, strange affinity for rivers that never cease to dazzle me and teach me new and again new and yet newer things every time I encounter them. Feeling out which, which other animals in your locale or which insects really can capture your fascination, even if, yeah, okay, so a forest bores you and um and and you find it boring to be talking about quote unquote nature whatever that would be and yet oh man there's a snake whoa and you're suddenly dazzled by that way of slithering across the ground finding those affinities and um beginning to apprentice ourselves to our 
various allies in the surrounding sensuous world. What kind of minerals, what sort of rock really speak to your body? You're listening to Spoken Earth with me, Adam Weymouth, in conversation with David Abram. Much of David's work feels in some sense to be about falling in love. Certainly that revelation with the bird song that I had when first reading his book was a lot like that, of seeing everything afresh. I asked him to speak about that a little more, and a beautiful phrase that I've come across in his writing, to fall in love outwards. Yeah, to fall in love outwards. It's an expression from our great West Coast poet Robinson Jeffers, who spoke of falling in love outwards with the land, with the world. But yeah, I, I do think that it is the more than human collective that really teaches us about diversity and the need for diversity, even and especially then in our human community and the importance of others, other kinds of folks who see the world way differently than you do. But we learn this first from our alliance with and engagement with other animals and with plants and noticing that, you know, a forest composed of just one kind of tree is not a very healthy forest. And it succumbs very easily to when an illness or blight moves through the land. But when we've got a diversity of species, you've got a thriving woodland and a thriving meadow, just the same with our human collective and with our human communities. So I think we learn a great deal about how to be with one another <laughs> by staying in relation to the more than human context that holds us and surrounds us. We don't have a chance of being who we are without all of these other species providing the context, the space, the elemental reality that enables us. So the real, the real reply to Descartes' confounding Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, seems to me the real reply to that is, well, I have a friend, a wonderful herbalist who came around and, and said, David, shouldn't Descartes have said, I feel, therefore I am. I feel, therefore I am, which, which is somewhat better, but it seems to me that the real response is, you are, therefore I am. You are, therefore I am. We, we make each other possible. And yet, I suppose there's a sense of needing to, to reach out and listen at a time when there is so much suffering not just amongst humans, but amongst you know, the entirety of the, the planet, there is so much suffering going on. It feels almost too much to bear, maybe, to really listen to what's going on. It's easier to, to not listen. It, it feels like it almost becomes increasingly easy to not listen because the alternative would be, it would be too awful to really, to really, to really listen. Huh. I don't know. My sense um, is that there's a lot of horror surrounding us on every hand, so many losses, so much uh, beauty being paved over, so much eloquence being squelched, but so many lives and so many also innocent 
human lives uh, being ground into the dust today that I suppose there is a large impetus to just shut the doors and lock the windows and spend more and more time in virtual spaces of our own exclusively human design and hide out from the excruciating ache of the real in its wonder. But the real is filled with wonder and astonishment and, yeah, eloquence and ache, for sure. But it seems to me that there's so much uh, fear of um, getting caught in grief, getting spun out and dizzy at the extent of the wounds that surround you when you step out into the real. And yet, it's only by engaging those wounds and letting them reverberate through your organism, and, and it's only by feeling the losses and grieving them and letting the tears flow when they come, because the parched earth needs that water to know that we are actually here and that we give a shit. And it's only by beginning to grieve and beginning to catch those reverberations that we have access to and find our way back into a world of wonders. It makes me think of a lack of feeling in general, I suppose, a lot of conversations around masculinity at the moment as well, and these kind of blocks that men in particular have towards opening themselves up and feeling and the fear of what's going to happen if you allow that feeling and the, the stagnancy and the violence that comes from that. Yes. I, I don't know how we ever got this stuck on this notion of the masculine as so armored and uptight and controlling. Uh, you've spent a good amount of time in the far north, perhaps some other cultures, indigenous settlements, where I, certainly from my very, very limited experience in traditional oral cultures, I feel like I encounter many other different modes and models of masculinity, so much so that it seems evident to me that in the hypermodern, alphabetized world of Western modernity, what we're really suffering from is, is the lack of the male heart, the masculine warmth and vitality and goofy playfulness that I've tasted and experienced in other cultures, that there are so many other ways of being a man that go hand in hand with a masculine physique and body that are not macho, machismo, uh, aggressive, controlling, so many other ways, goofy and splendid, and all of them infused with feeling. And that, and that, and that sort of modern Western masculinity for so long has been able to convince itself that that is the right mode of seeing things as well. And any sort of more intuitive way of knowing or emotional way of knowing is a form of weakness you know we, we've we've played we've played a very good game for a long time and it feels like it's starting to crumble although there's a lot of people hanging on 
Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Of course, when you're open to feeling, feelings are so multifarious and multiple and um, multiply strange. So we have perhaps just a very small repertoire of feelings that we've become familiar with, given the strange style of our civilization. But to open to feeling is to drop into into a wild cauldron of possible styles of sensation and sensibility. And I hope, you know, I mean, what, what reason to be alive if you're not tasting from as many of those as you can with gusto? The deliciousness of being a body, of having a body, we say, but I think of, of being an embodied creature as we are is that our body is a variant of every other body in the landscape that we encounter, whether it be a lichen-encrusted granite boulder or a chunk of sandstone or a clump of grass or a mountain or a storm cloud or a, a bank of fog rolling in from offshore or a coyote or a clucking hen or a spider, yeah, or a frog, or a humpback whale, or a moose. I have so many affinities with every other body that surrounds, and yet they're all different from me. They're different in shape and texture and weight and style of movement and rhythm. And yet I can just lean a bit in its direction and I can pick up a reverberation from any other organism any other being, any other presence in the body's world, which we call Earth. And I am a variant of all those other beings. And so I, I can suss out and lean into and pick up something of the feeling, the rhythmic dynamism of that other. And if I can't, well, just go back day after day and apprentice myself a bit to that chunk of sandstone or to that clump of weeds. And um, I'll begin to learn. I'll begin to learn something of how those weeds, those beings, those plants uh, look at the world from their own utterly unique angle and perspective. So outrageously different from my own and yet not completely other, or I wouldn't be able to see or sense them at all that it's only when I allow that this bodied form, this two-legged, two-armed form, is my sentient, sensitive intelligence, that I start noticing all the other bodies that surround and realize that just, just as this body I am has sensitivities, has feelings, sensations, so every other body I encounter must be tasting, feeling the world in its own way, from its own angle. And so that strange split between the mind and the body hides me not from a kind of oneness, but it hides me from the outrageous multiplicity of the real, the irreducible, radical pluralism of, of existence.
You're listening to Spoken Earth. Today I'm speaking with David Abram. David is a regular contributor to Emergence magazine, and I'm particularly interested to speak with him about his 2018 essay, Creaturely Migrations on a Breathing Planet, which overlaps with a lot of what my own work has focused on these past few years, that of the salmon. As you rejoin us, he's reading from that essay about the great annual in-breath and out-breath of the land, that is the epic salmon migration. Perhaps it would be useful now and then to consider the large collective migrations of various creatures as active expressions of the earth itself, to consider them as slow gestures of a living geology, improvisational experiments that gradually stabilized into habits now necessary to the ongoing metabolism of the sphere. For truly are not these cyclical pilgrimages, these huge creaturely hegiras, also pulses within the broad body of the earth? Are they not ways that divergent places or ecosystems communicate with one another, trading vital qualities essential to their continued flourishing? Think again of the salmon, this gift born of the rocky gravels and melting glaciers, nurtured by colossal cedars and by tumbled trunks decked with moss, fungi, and ferns, an aquatic muscled energy strengthening itself in the forested mountains until it's ready to be released into the broad ocean. Pouring seaward, it adds itself to that voluminous cauldron of currents spiraling in huge gyres, shaded by algal blooms and charged by faint glissandos of whale song. Until, grown large with the sea's abundance, this ocean-infused life flows back up the rivers and tributaries and spreads out into the wooded valleys, gifting the hollows and the needled highlands with new minerals and nutrients, feeding bears and osprey and eagles, ensuring that the glinting gift will be reborn afresh from a lump of luminous eggs stashed beneath a layer of pebbles. This circulation, this systole and diastole, is one of the surest signs that this earth is alive, a rhythmic pulse of silvery, glacier-fed brilliance pouring through various arteries into the wide body of the ocean, circulating and growing there, only to return by various veins to the beating heart of the forest, gravid with new life. Or perhaps it's better to think of this seasonal reciprocity as a kind of breathing, as an exhalation of millions of young salmon smolts down from the tree-thick mountains and meadows and then out into that roiling cosmos of currents and tidal flows to mingle with zooplankton and seals and squids. And then the great in-breath, the drawing in of living nourishment from the sea into river mouths and estuaries, inhaling the salmon up the rivers into streams and from there into the branching becks, rills, and runnels that filter into the green forests, the living lungs of this biosphere. Or, or is it the broad-bellied ocean 
that is breathing, sucking these finned nutrients down from the shaded slopes, luring them over rocks and through rapids and hydroelectric dam spillways, drawing them past bustling cities and factories through intersecting gradients of toxic effluents that sting their mouths and strafe their exposed membranes, on out into the heaving whirl of the sea's innards, circulating this glimmering nourishment within itself before exhaling it back, a long sighing breath up into the wooded valleys. However else we may view them, these deterritorializations and re-territorializations, these huge migrations of various species are a primary way that the biosphere cleanses and flexes its various organs, replenishing itself, each region drawing insight from the others, concentrating and transforming such qualities before releasing them abroad. Divergent places trading perspectives along with nutrients and nucleotides, the whole half-shadowed sphere steadily experimenting, improvising, slowly altering its display to the blazing fire watching from afar as the reflected moon rolls on around. There, that's enough. To, to me, what's so powerful about that, it's almost as though whilst we've taken language as exclusively ours, we've allowed all these other senses and perceptions of the world to be kind of exclusively for the animals. And, and, and reading that about the salmon and about how they have evolved to be in tune and, and their senses have evolved in harmony with the planet. There's this really obvious question which comes next, which is, well, if the salmon, then of course, why not us as well? Of course, that is all there in all of us. And, and, and that's the next line that you go on to say, might not humans too recognize ourselves as expressions of the animate earth? And of course, <laughs> and there's something very powerful in your writing that, that makes it so blinding the obvious just, just for a moment. But that moment is enough to kind of upend us and open a different space. Yes, that's great. Also picking up on what you said about, you know, I'm just really struck by our, our notion that that language is this exclusively human property. When so much of our language, it seems to me, of our various human languages are born, of course, in a deeply oral context. And hence, when we were living as hunters and foragers in a deeply animistic relation to the land around us, assuming that everything speaks. And hence, our human languages were all born in a kind of call and response, not just with other human speakers, but in a call and response to a speaking land. One of the examples I would give of this, and there'd be many, would be in English, the words we inevitably draw on to speak of the movement of water between the banks of a stream will be words like splash or rush or gush or wash. But the sound that unites all those words, gush, wash, splash, rush, is the sound that the water itself speaks as it moves between the banks. That is, our human languages are fed continuously by this much wider than human speaking of, of the living land itself, the more than human 
community of speakers. And it's just a, a small shred of time since we stepped into the alphabet and this curious assumption that is not forced upon us by the alphabet, but it's made possible by the alphabet, this curious assumption that we humans alone speak. But of course, there have been many great writers from Henry David Thoreau to my friend Terry Tempest or to Richard Powers with his beautiful novel, The Overstory, Ed Abbey, uh, so many brilliant writers given to the alphabet who use it as a way to open human language back onto that wider than human field of voices and to plug our language into that much wider conversation always already going on. So yeah, people have misunderstood my work as saying or suggesting that writing is bad or that the alphabet is a bad or evil influence upon us. And what a, a misreading that is, because I am a writer and I do love the written word and I feel in service also to literature. But the truth is, I was never saying that writing is bad. I was rather saying that writing is magic and that the alphabet is a particularly potent form of magic and that we don't recognize it as such. We tend to fall under its spell, which is the spell of spelling. But if we recognize it as a magic, then we can wield this spell. We can wield this magic responsibly on behalf of all of the animate life that is our collective home. This is Spoken Earth with me, Adam Weymouth. The term Anthropocene, used to donate a new geological epoch, the planet shaped by Anthropos, by man, is very much in vogue at the moment, used not just by scientists, but by writers, artists, politicians. But David has criticised the term, and I'm interested to know where he finds fault with it. It is filled with so much hubris to take the name for ourselves, the Anthropos, and put it at the heart, at the center of a name for a new geological epoch. It's insanely arrogant. It's also massively misleading. It suggests that humans are now coextensive, you know, with the whole of earthly reality, that we are the major player and agency in the world, as if there were not all these other agential players, powers, dancing, enabling, uh, or cutting across our own dance in the unfurling of the biosphere. Today, it seems to me, if we really wanted a, a term that underscores our human agency in setting up this very, very difficult epoch now upon us, and I, I should say, I, I don't have any quarrel with what we mean to point at uh, by the term Anthropocene, that we humans have, through our mischief, brought about a very strange new set of affairs on uh, the planet within the biosphere. I just think to put our name at the center of it, you know, I coined a, a phrase in my first book, The Spell of the Sensuous. The subtitle was Perception and Language in a More Than Human World. And I used that phrase, which I coined 
in that book, The More Than Human World, because I got really tired of just writing about nature, which is so often juxtaposed to culture as that which is not culture, nature, that which is out there. Culture is the human thing we have over here in our cities, in our human collectives. And I wanted some way to speak of what we were calling nature that said it includes all of what we associate with culture, all of this creativity, and even our technology and our arts, all is within this larger field I was wanting to speak of. I wanted to speak of it as a sort of a, a subset within a larger set. There's the human world, and then there's the more than human world, which includes the human world of culture and technology and language and all of our stuff, but it exceeds the human world. It's always more than just us. And so the more than human world, a way of saying that which includes the human, but exceeds the human, even with all of our audacious originality and creativity. The trouble with the term Anthropocene, it suggests that there is nothing that exceeds the human. There is nothing more outside the sphere of our human endeavors that we touch and our reach and influence extends into every nook and cranny of earthly reality. And I think this is terribly sad. Many folks inevitably are taking up the term Anthropocene as a kind of aspirational term. So it's like we broke it, so now we own it. We own the biosphere. Let's now engineer it to best suit our purposes. We are now as gods, or we'd better get to be as gods because we're the only ones who can who can oversee this, this mess. Again, terrible hubris, it seems to me. If we want to, and of course, various people have suggested other possibilities like capitalocene or plantationocene or all sorts of other possibilities, and yet the scientific community and the geological community says, but we need to underscore that our species is really at the core of what has brought about this new state of affairs. And I think, okay, well then don't use the word anthropos, but work with the word human, which is, as we now all recognize, the word human is cognate with the word humility, both originating in the humus. The human is that being close to the humus, to the, to the soil, to the earth. And humility is that which keeps us close to the soil. It seems to me that the term Anthropocene, it sort of forecloses any turn toward humility for our species and says, yeah, we now have to take the reins of this runaway machine or this runaway beast. And I would say, no, we should work with the term human and call it the humilocene, the era of humanity, which is also the era of humility that we now need to go through or drink a deep glass of humility. My friend Dugald Hine suggests the word the humbling, that this era we're now going through might be called in oral tradition, I think, the humbling. We are being humble. And can we ingest and take on a new, metabolize a new kind of restraint and respect in all our dealings 
with the world, a new humility in the face of all these other dazzling lives in a way that ensures that as many of them can flourish into the future as possible. So a lot of my scientific brothers and sisters, particularly those in the geological community, they feel like it's not meant to exalt the human at all. But these folks are not listening with their animal ears or their pet's ears to the way words influence us and certainly begin to constrain our activity when we wield certain words. And thinking that we live in the anthropocentric era or in the Anthropocene, it just, it almost suggests that we don't really need to pay much attention to other animals now, much less to the plants and to the fungi, because it's really all about us now. And I think that is the effect that name is already having within the world at large, where many people wielding the term are not steeped in the sciences. And so I think we have to be careful poets, even as geologists and biologists and botanists. We have to take great care with, with the lexicon and the language we introduce. It, it also proportions blame equally. You know, it, it also inculcates this guilt that we will have. If humanity is to blame, then these oral indigenous cultures are as much to blame as the CEOs of these giant fossil fuel companies to blame and focus for the mess that we're in is also very negative in that sense, I think. It, it erases historical blame and it almost treats it as a facet of human nature that, well, of course, this is what we're going to create, whereas the vast majority of the humans on the planet have contributed next to nothing to, to where we are now. So in that sense, I think it's quite a comforting term for us to use in the West as well because it almost absolves us of, of the guilt. It's just... It's part of our animal nature to, to create a planet like this. Yeah, to destroy our world. Yeah. Which is, which is nonsensical, as is made obvious by so many of the traditional oral cultures and indigenous cultures. Exactly. Most cultures, most of time. We, we've been living in an Anthropocene, if that's what you want to call it, since the birth of humanity. But in... Yes, just so. so. I fully agree. But I, it does seem to me like it really forecloses or closes off the possibility of a turn toward humility. Just what we don't need at this time is a closing off of that, of that trail through the woods. You've been listening to Spoken Earth. Edited and produced by Uli Mattson. Music by Uli Matson, performed along with Ben O'Connor and Amir Shoat. It's a Lacuna podcast, and we'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>